0: Welcome to another exciting installment of EW's Game of Thrones podcast. I am senior writer Darren Franich. And I am
1: editor-at-large James Hibbard.
0: We have so much to talk about this week, about the episode. The title was Oathbreaker. Now, James, each week on Game of Thrones, sometimes we lose people, sometimes we lose lots of people. This week, though, I think it's fair to say... Surely the most tragic passing in the show's history. How do we feel about the loss of Shaggy Dog?
1: You know, we've gotten to know Shaggy Dog so well over so many episodes. We've seen so much action and adventure with Shaggy Dog, saving the day so many times. And now uh, Shaggy Dog is, you know, sadly no more.
0: We saw the head of Shaggy Dog uh, in the midst of a reintroduction of characters who some people may have even just forgotten because it's been, uh, I believe, close to three years since we've seen them, Um, but uh, just when you thought that... Ramsey Bolton's position could not be any more horrifying. Somebody kind of, you know, put it out online that we've, we've seen him kill babies, and, and this week there was the head of a cute puppy-ish uh, direwolf in his throne room. So just a, a generally not likable guy. But now he's in a major position to do horrible things to another character because Rickon and Osha have rejoined the show.
1: You know, we can only hope that Ramsey has learned a thing or two about torturing prisoners after his experience with Sansa and Theon, but he probably hasn't right?
0: First of all, I mean, great to see Rick on again. He, like Bran, has clearly aged about ten years in the past six months, but you had to just feel so freaked out for him, and for Osha, too. I mean, I'd be interested to know what you think, James. Osha uh, was really one of the characters who, in the book, I I had never really paid much attention to, and in her time on the show, in kind of late season one through season three, she became such a kind of vibrant part of the story up north, so seeing her again in that position made me feel very, very anxious.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, and actually, she was actually a character that even uh, George R. R. Martin once mentioned in, a, in an interview I did with him that one of those characters that after seeing uh, the way she was played on the show and the way she evolved in the show, it sort of influenced the way he thought of her in terms of his writing. But, you know, yeah, it was it was sort of this double whammy of news. Rickon Stark is back and he's captured by Ramsay and we're down another dire wolf.
0: By my count, we now have Three direwolves left, right? Because th- there's Nymeria, who nobody really knows where she is. Right. There's Ghost, obviously, who's who's doing just fine. Ghost who, who's gotten the, the most running time of any direwolf on, on on the series. Um, we lost Lady early on, tragically. Who am I missing here, James? Who's who's the last direwolf?
1: Well, there's Summer. There there is Bran's direwolf, who is in uh with Bran, I believe, in his uh Groot tree fort. <laughs>
0: When I was I was sort of starting to codename it um, The Great Deku Tree from uh, Legend of Zelda because whenever they're sort of inside of there it feels like uh, one of the great levels from Legend of Zelda 64. <laughs> I had long theorized, I think I've I've told you about this before, that Rickon was going to wind up being like one of the most important characters in the show's endgame. In the books, at this point, he has been said to be located in Skagos, uh, one of those great islands that's sort of off in the corner, uh, off the coastline of... Of Westeros fair to say uh that is that's is not where he is in the show and uh, perhaps perhaps my estimation about how much longer we would spend with uh, Rick on stark were' a little bit a little bit optimistic how are you kind of feeling about uh what's gonna happen to him and OSHA uh, in the in the near future
1: well I mean obviously not a good position to be in but obviously uh characters have escaped Ramsey before you know what I found funny is that you know in they the covering the first season in my recaps I always call them the Maggie Simpson of the Stark family, because, you know, he he rarely had anything to say. And here he comes back after being away since season three, and he literally doesn't say a word. He just sort of stands there. <laughs> it's like he's back and he's once again has nothing to say. Uh, he'll presumably be speaking at some point and 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 I do look forward to that day. And, you know, my other thought, too, is is that Shaggy Dog to me, you know, on one hand, it's it, it's so cute that he, he, he named his his dire wolf. A, you have clearly what a little kid would name their dire wolf, but it also sort of suggested to me that you probably shouldn't be allowed to name a dire wolf until you're at least 10 years old. It's a wolf, not a dog, and it's always sort of sounded a little Scooby-Doo for me or like a name that an animal shelter will like give the dog and then you take take the, your dog home and then, and then you give your dog like a real name.
0: Can you imagine, like, like, you know, Rickon, like, you know, theoretically, if he'd grown up to be a great warrior and, you know, 20 years hence, he was, like, on a battlefield somewhere preparing for a showdown. And then he called upon (laughs) his noble direwolf, and, like, you know, oh, like, you know, all all of the kind of maesters spoke of the time. And he said, go, Shaggy Dog, (laughs) go.
1: Slay my enemy, Shaggy Dog.
0: There's already, of course, a, a, a popular fan theory, somewhat perhaps a too hopeful for me, that says that that is maybe not. Uh, shaggy dog. That uh, this this may all be some sort of uh, plan by I I think it's he is the small John Umber or perhaps now he is the great John Umber. One of the John Umbers who we saw kind of making a pact with with, with Ramsey. There is some theory that he may be kind of launching some sort of espionage thing, and and that uh, that was not the direwolf. What do you what do you think about that?
1: You know, as much as I would love to believe that Shaggy Dog is still alive and frolicking somewhere, I suspect. That that is, I, I suspect that it's it's probably considered very hard to fake a direwolf, and <laughs> that there's not that many of them around as we were always told. So it's probably really is Shaggy Dog, and people have been wondering why why kill off Shaggy Dog, and the totally unsexy reason. Is that the producers probably didn't have a way to keep Shaggy Dog in the storyline? It's like you have Rickon Stark captured. What do you do uh, with this direwolf? Because when you think about it, there's ultimately probably plenty of folks hanging around Winterfell who could identify Rickon. You know, you know they probably didn't really need the direwolf, you know, to prove to Ramsay that that's really a Stark. Uh, so I suspect the reason was probably something more. Well, those writerly things where you're in there. It's like, well, shoot, what do we? do with the direwolf. Ah, let's just kill the direwolf. You know, so so it's probably, you know, as heartbreaking as that move was, it was probably more expedience than anything, I suspect.
0: Right. Uh, while we're up north, let's shift a little further up north to, to a, uh, a relatively happy place where there is still at least one direwolf around. Uh, Jon Snow came back to life. As you pointed out in your recap, he clearly uh, took a quick detour by CrossFit on his way uh, back to life. Uh, Kit Harrington looking great, definitely not a corpse anymore. I was quite struck by the fact that the second he came back to life... Give the man a moment, people. Like, Melisandre came in and was immediately saying, like, you are the chosen one, and Davos came in and was immediately giving him all kinds of, like, really sort of a, you know, Gene Hackman in in Hoosiers level kind of coaching advice. It seemed like it was it was a lot for John to take in all at once.
1: Yeah, I just love, and I pointed this out in the recap, but I, I just love Kit Harington's physical acting in that whole sequence. I mean, he really did a lot uh, physically to sort of sell that idea that he was just came back to life and is basically in shock. So I, th- I thought he was just terrific dur- during that whole scene, and yeah, you know, Sir Davos is immediately going, you know, you know, within a couple minutes, just going, okay, yeah, oh, you sh- yeah, you're back from the dead, but you know, just shake it off, buddy. I mean, what's what does that have to do with anything moving forward? Let's let's not even talk about that. Let's let's, let's just get out there and and move on. I mean, what are you gonna focus on on the fact that you were dead and resurrected for all day? <laughs> you know,
0: well, and, and I, I found interesting too. I mean, like James, I don't need to tell you I am the world's leading fanboy of Davos Seaworth, and you know, his his uh, role in the show has sometimes been um, you know, a, a little bit diminished from what he does in the books. I found it really quite touching in this scene. There was a line he said that seems to me to really get to the essence of Davos, where you know, John was saying, quite understandably, like, I tried doing what I thought was right, and I failed. In the worst way anyone could fail, I died. And then Davos just said, you know, with sort of like a, a little smile on his face, good. Now go fail again. And, and that to me really cuts to the core of what I like about that character in in a way that I've rarely kind of seen on the show Um, what do you think about like Davos sort of now being consigliere to John it seems like he's he's sort of like nicely repositioned himself after the loss of uh, Stannis Baratheon last season
1: well, yeah, I mean, you couldn't have a a better right hand man than Sir Davos. I mean, I wish you know every time I have a hard decision to make, I wish I could I, I could like text uh, you know Sir Sir Davos on my phone and just be like, "Hey, should I do this or should I do that?" and then like Sir Davos would like give me some awesome advice and be like "Yes, thank you, sir Davos uh so i I think John couldn't be uh, couldn't be in a better situation than they's got. Like on one hand, he's got, uh, you, you know, this this awesome advisor in Sir Davos. On the other hand, you know, he's, he's got this like powerful witch creature with uh, Melisandre, <laughs> you know, he's, uh, you know, sort of, you know, he's, he's, you know, he's got the wildlings that have got his back now. Um, he's in this sort of interesting position now, moving forward, and uh, and plus shorter hair, so he, he doesn't have to worry about that getting in his face, which which nobody's commenting on. You know, when he walked down into that courtyard, and they're all standing there with their mouths open. It's like, are they reacting to his hair because it really is shorter? And you know, I guess Melisandre just cut off a lot more than we saw. Uh, during those snippets, so to speak. Oh, yo,
0: know, his like like last samurai top knot is one of the best things that's ever happened to that character. I think I am I am very excited about that. And you know, it's funny with Jon Snow, his hair being cut, much like Cersei's hair being cut. That that seems like a very symbolic, you know, deeper uh, thing about what may happen with him this season. Um, James, I didn't realize something, and I think that you referenced this in your recap. Listen, Ollie is not the most likable person on Game of Thrones. That's not a controversial statement. I all along had felt a little bit of perhaps sympathy for him just because, you know, listen, he's had a hard life. He saw everybody he knows, uh, you know, killed. Some of the people who killed his family then sort of went on to be very close to Jon Snow. So, you know, he's, he's a kid. He, he doesn't quite understand all the kind of greater political implications of this. Last night, we, we finally saw the end of Ollie People online seem to be very happy about this. They, they are basically like, yeah. ding dong, the witch is dead. I, I'm a little upset by this.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. People were intensely hating on Ollie. There's a whole subreddit on, on Reddit where it's all about wanting Ollie to die in the most horrific way, way possible. And <laughs> one of my, my theories about it is that the way the character was done, it wasn't just a betrayal of Jon Snow. It was sort of a betrayal of the viewers too because the viewers felt sorry for this character and we sympathized with him so when he turned against Jon Snow you know it was wasn't just like he was betraying Jon Snow it was sort of like he he was betraying us as as viewers you know and and our feelings that we had it's it's like we were rooting for for him you know we had all sympathy for him and then he sort of betrayed us as well and I think that that's part of the sort of intensity of of that backlash, though, so, you know, though it, there, it was funny when uh, looking around online today, I, I was feeling bad for like all the characters that were executed in that final scene because it's like they, I, I hope they're not online looking around and they're like going oh, why is everybody talking about the damn dire Wolf? It's like, you know, my character was killed off the show. I've been here since season one or whatever. It's like, it's like, and now everyone's like, like complaining that, oh, oh, shaggy dog's gone.
0: Well, of course, and, and uh, Alistair Thorne, and, uh, you know, quick, shameless shout-out to the fact that you have a great interview with the actor who played Alistair Thorne. Going all the way back, I mean, one of the things that I, I liked so much about Alistair Thorne as a character was, you know, in Game of Thrones, you have these people who are kind of, like, obviously kind of great heroes or, you know, great figures, whether they're royalty or nobility or great knights, and Alistair Thorne just, you know, in every way was someone who was a fascinating sort of background character and, you know, he, he tormented John and, and, you know, in, in that way he, he he represented a lot of the other Night's Watch, and then just over the over the course of time he came to the fore so much more, and so in a way, really, as I think you pointed out, losing him was a little bit maybe sadder for some people than Ollie, just because he is a character who, no matter what he did, he are always kind of like ah, like, I, I, I understand his perspective on this. It, it's wrong, and, you know, if he could just see the White Walkers, he might Changes tune, but you always kind of got where he was coming from.
1: Yeah, yeah, you sort of felt like if if Thorn and Jon Snow were ever sent out on like a mission together, that 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 they potentially could have bonded. You know, that there is that there that there, there's potential there, and that you know they just had this sort of different worldview. And what I loved about that interview with uh, the actor uh, uh, Owen Teal was he really spelled out. The undercurrent of what was in that scene in the final scene where where, uh, you know, he you know, he tells Jon Snow that that you're going to be fighting battles all your life. He points out that that basically his worldview is people are basically bad. They're greedy and selfish. It's survival of the fittest. And if you open yourself up and weaken yourself, uh, you'll be taken out by somebody else. And so he feels that. You know, John Snow is sort of doomed to make the same mistakes over and over again because his entire worldview is flawed, and therefore he also accepts that it's all over for him and that and that he has sort of earned this execution because he was basically outplayed. What I also love in that whole thing is that he is completely unimpressed that John Snow came back to life. He's just like, you know, there's literally nothing that John Snow can do to like to like impress this guy. You know, you know he you know he he does all these. <laughs> heroic great things throughout the course of series and he just hates him all the more finally he just stabs him to death he's dead for you know a day or two or however long it's been and then he just like pops back to life and and, and thorne is just like what you think you're you're special or something you're just gonna be keep being resurrected like a coward you know he's just like his entire attitude just never changes
0: i did find the fact that he was so true to himself all the way to the end uh, really spoke volumes about him and you know his death and the deaths of all of the traitors and Ollie leads Jon to a character moment that, you know, for for a lot of people, in a way, the whole saga has been leading to, to a certain extent. I mean, one of the things that I've always loved about Jon Snow's character arc up to now is that, you know, it's always reminded me a lot of The Chronicles of Prydain, this fantasy series by Lloyd Alexander, which is very proto Song of Ice and Fire in the sense that you always think it's going to be about heroism and it's ultimately about things that are much more complicated than that. And with Jon Snow, all you've ever wanted, you know, going back to the end of book one when he said he was going to ride south and ride with with his brother, going back to, you know, in book five, he has a moment when he says, you know, we're going to ride south and, you know, we're going to do something. And, you know, you've always wanted to see him become a kind of, you know, romantic hero and, you know, someone who can really do more. And, you know, he's always been so shackled or rather, you know, perhaps he's been, you know, willing to honor this oath that he made. You know, this oath that, you know, as a very young boy, he said, I I, I will become the sort of warrior monk of, of the North, and I will not do any of that stuff.
1: Which was a terrible decision by 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 the way. For from the, the very beginning of the series, I was always just like, uh, oh, why would you join the nice watch? It just sounds it's it, you're basically condemning yourself to celibacy in prison. It's it's uh it just sounds like 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 an awful way to go. From the very beginning, you know, and this is true in the books as well, it's like you really want him to break out of this place he, he's in. And it seems like there's no way for him to do that because he's an honorable person. He won't break his oath. And at the same time, he's in this sort of miserable situation where he's never go- going to get the respect he deserves. Um, you know, his life is in danger constantly and there are other things going on that we want him to be involved in. So Thus, we have the loophole, you know, the Night's Watch Creed uh, says that you're you're in this until death. And he's like, whoa, hey, wait a second. You know, I just died. I'm back. So, uh, you know, there we go.
0: I'm intrigued to see what happens next. I mean, uh, you know, the fact that in the same episode where Jon Snow... Left The Night's Watch, or, or or at least, you know, seemed to kind of give over the uh, Night's commandership to Dolorous Ed. Uh, in that same episode where we also had a lot of talk in Ramsey Bolton's chamber about, uh, you know, Lord Umber is really upset about Jon Snow letting the Wildlings through. It, it seems as if everything is kind of in place for there to become a, a, a kind of Jon Snow versus Ramsay Bolton in some way showdown, something which, which I think is even more made clear by the fact that um, Bran's trips into Westeros' past seem to be kind of circling towards something about our favorite bastard in the North. What did you think about uh, our latest trip into deeper Westeros history with uh, Bran and the Three-Eyed Raven?
1: Oh, man, I loved it. Um, We've been uh, getting teased that we were going to see this, and uh, that sword fight was terrific, wasn't it? I mean, it was just – I mean, the show stages sword fights so well, and there's this one shot – That's like, I don't know how many seconds it is, but it just seems to go on for an inordinate period of time where it's all the fighters in frame and and there's about like 20 different sword strikes throughout that and lots of moving around without cutting away. You're just like, wow, how many takes did it take to get that shot? Um, You know, I I just thought it was pretty thrilling.
0: This sequence is something that we've always heard about in the books. We've heard some tell of it before on, on the show. When we saw Arthur Dane, which is you know, one of the great sort of warrior names of all time, he kind of told young, young Sean Bean, I, I wish you good fortune in the wars to come, which I think is also, Mance Raider said that to Stannis uh, right before he died.
1: Right, right. Yeah, it's definitely a callback there.
0: One of the things that I liked about that scene, James, is that uh, we talked about this a little bit um, a couple weeks ago when uh, the Martells were all killed. I like how sometimes the show sort of tells its master plot in one sort of single sequence. You know, in this scene, we saw Ned Stark, who is really the show's kind of, like, original you know, patron of nobility and of, you know, doing things the right way and not the corrupt way. I like how this show basically gave him a man-who-shot-Liberty-Valance moment because as Bran is watching what his father had always said was one of his greatest battles, you know, this this battle with Arthur Dane, the greatest swordsman of all time. Within the world of the show, Bran had always heard, oh, like, my dad defeated him in single combat. And as he as he looked on, you know, with confusion as they were fighting somebody else just came up and stabbed <laughs> stabbed Arthur Dane in the back. Yeah, that's fantastic.
1: That's that, that that's one of those great examples of where you have okay, there's the myth and then there's what's actually happened and what actually happened certainly doesn't make Ned Stark look as heroic as what the story became, but at the same time it's not like like Ned Stark did that you know so you know what's he going to do you know i mean there you know, he's literally you know fighting for his life and he's uh fighting you know he thanks you know for for his, for his sister's life there there's no shame in the, in the way that went down but it is interesting that the way he spun it moving forward was like yeah, 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 yeah. That was me. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I defeated the the, the greatest swordsman ever. You know, it's like you know w- when he goes to the bar after that. You know, that's the version that he's going to tell. You know, and uh, you know, it, and if if you want people to not mess with you in Westeros, that's probably uh, not a bad thing to say. I
0: was confused by that scene in a few ways because you know, again, I and and some of this I know. I'm sure some people out there can feel this too. When you read the books. Very devotedly, and watch the show very devotedly. There are some things that all kind of run together a little bit. So in that scene, the guy doing the stabbing was Father Reed, who is the father of um, of Mira and Jojen. In the books, I, I think that, like, at some point, Ned or, or perhaps Bran recalled Ned talking about how he was there that day. But it, it was interesting to me that, like, they sort of went the extra mile to root it a, a little bit. Sometimes, frankly, I forget, like, who the Reeds are and what they're doing with, with Bran. So it was, nice to, it was nice to remember, like, okay, yes, like, there is some kind of historical basis for all of these characters' families kind of being um, all together in one place. I, I kind of don't know how much to talk about this because you and I both thought something big was going to happen in that scene, uh, which is, you know, hashtag Tower of Joy for a lot of people out there we didn't quite get there this week, which I found frustrating and, and and interesting.
1: No, we didn't get there at all. Actually. (laughs) I think there are a lot of reporters who cover the show that were all like braced for, uh, for, you know, to report certain things potentially happening that didn't end up happening. But, you know, we're getting, we're getting this tease. I, you know, I think it's kind of a smart, just narratively storytelling wise to sort of break that sequence up into into what I'm hoping will be two sequences that will eventually see what happens, uh, when Ned Stark goes up into that tower. Because of course the three eye Raven once again, right as we're starting to really lean in, is just like, no, 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 this is way too interesting for you to watch. Let's pull you back out in, in into the uh into your little tree home. Because uh, you know, you know, we we, we don't want you losing yourself in the past, uh, which is, you know you know okay he's looking out for him he doesn't want to get get him to get too high and drunk on his own sort of vision questing but at the same time you know you, you as a viewer you're watching that going oh my god just l- let me see a little more you know we're right there with bran and feeling what he's feeling which i, I suppose is probably the intention Okay, so next, you know, I think we should do the uh, trivia question because uh, we normally do this at the very end. But the problem is, is that some of you out there have gotten way too clever and uh, we would upload the podcast and within like minutes – Uh, we would get all these answers back on the trivia question because we're putting it at the end and everyone sort of figured that out pretty quickly. And so they're jetting to the back. So uh, let's go ahead and uh, do that and shake up the format and uh, do that. Now, Uh, what do you got for us, Darren?
0: The trivia question this week is somewhat in reference to the scene that James and I were just talking about. In that scene, we heard a bit about Rhaegar Targaryen. Now, we've heard about Rhaegar Targaryen a few times on the show. Never seen him, but we've heard about him from three characters in particular. One character said that he killed Rhaegar every night in his dreams. One character told a story about how Rhaegar loved to disguise himself as a minstrel and Sing. And one character sought vengeance for the death of Rhaegar Targaryen's wife. Who are those three characters, and what do they all have in common? This week, people who play the ew game of thrones trivia contest they'll be getting in honor of poor shaggy dog they'll be getting a mug with a with a dire wolf's head on it so make sure you email us at Podcast at ew.com who are those three characters what do they have in common Let's shift a little bit to King's Landing, where we are starting to see what happens when you have uh, the, the twin Lannisters in the same place working together. What happens is people don't seem to like them very much.
1: <laughs> yeah. I was actually surprised by that. I was surprised that their dislike of them and their rejection of their power and authority was stronger than their fear of them and because they're both so murderous. They got mountain sign with them. I was sort of surprised at the uh, the small council walkout scene.
0: I was too, only because, you know, it seems to me as if the way forward for King's Landing is to be united somehow in, in, in any way possible, even if it's a sort of team of rivals situation. And now it seems like, you know, we, we have the small council who are just refusing to work with, you know, pretty much anyone, really. You have the actual king, Tommen, who just, in, in such a another just delightful scene, tried so hard to exercise his power and just really could not exercise his, his power. <laughs> um, and then lastly, you have uh, Cersei and Jaime, who seem to be, to me at least, seem to be trying to accomplish something and, uh, you know, not necessarily being allowed to. You know, it's, you know we, we talked last week about how we may be coming back to another, war of five kings on the grand level, but it also seems like within King's Landing, there are just so many different forces at play now. Yeah, I mean,
1: King's Landing is a, is a total mess, because everybody thinks they're in charge. The High Sparrow, you know, thinks and might be right that he's basically running the show now. Uh, Tommen is like, hey, I'm king, I should be running the show. Uh, Cersei and Jaime, you know, feel like like they're, they're in charge and they don't trust anyone else to be in charge. The small council's like, well, you know, we're we're the ones that are supposed to be governing things, so they think they're in charge. Everybody thinks that they're in charge, and as a result, there's like a lot of conflict and uh, a lot of sort of confusion. You know, the other thing obviously that came out there is uh, out of all that is that Cersei and Jamie are planning to use the mountain to represent Cersei in a presumed uh, trial by combat if the High Sparrow and the Faith Militant file charges against her. We all know. The problem is with plans on this show is that whenever you have a plan, especially if you've stated ahead of time, It's like, is it really going to go according to plan? You know, another thing that we've been getting a lot of comments on is Arya and her storyline. And people have been a little bit frustrated with that so far this season. What's been your take on on what she's had going on so far?
0: James, controversial statement. I'd be happy if they took everything about the Faceless Men and threw them into the ocean. I I sort of always felt this way a little bit, even in the books, just because... This is sort of maybe a, a bigger fascination and also frustration with where A Song of Ice and Fire goes after Storm of Swords. But when you start getting in these characters who are very devoted to some kind of fundamentalist orthodoxy, whether it's the High Sparrow, whether it's the Sons of the Harpy, you do start getting into characters who are sometimes less, you know, dramatically interesting than someone like, you know, the Lannisters or, you know, who are so kind of, you know, into power or the Tyrells or even some of the Martells. For me, the faceless men, I kind of had the most problem with them because they are literally not characters. (laughs) Or, you know, you never really know which characters you're kind of latching on to. I've liked what the show has done with the storyline just because I do think that, you know, I'm not even sure if she's been named, probably not because she's a faceless person, but, you know, Arya's kind of, uh, you know, sensei, the woman who just keeps on slapping her in the face. She's become kind of a real figure. So I I appreciate all that. When George R. R. Martin, was thinking about having a major time jump in the series. This is, I think, the storyline that maybe would have that would have served the best. Because I, I do sort of feel like, you know, Maisie Williams is awesome. You know, you, you want to see her start to kind of go off and do her kind of, uh, you know, End of Batman Begins, you know, adventuring, whatever that may be. So I, I, I too feel the frustration of people who feel like we've sort of seen this this training montage going on for too long. Um, that being said, as you point out, when they actually do a training montage, that's something that I can kind of hold on to.
1: It was very sort of subtly, craftily done, but they literally did like a Rocky Four style training montage last night, cutting back and forth between the oral test uh, that that the waif was giving her versus the you know being you know, hit in the face with with a stick test, uh, which Arya eventually started getting her Daredevil-like abilities and passed with flying colors. It's tough because, A, I do like the relationship, uh, the antagonism between the Waif and Arya. I, I find that interesting. And, you know, there, there's a level of tension there that I like. Seeing her get hit in the face for, like, three episodes in a row, however, <laughs> is, is, is not my favorite thing. But, uh, you know, now she has her eyes back. So that is sort of suggesting that, okay, now this is going to take a turn and go in a different direction. And, you know, the whole thing was sort of shot so well and, and performed so well that, you know, I understand the complaints that viewers have with it, but it's not like I'm ever watching – uh, Maisie Williams in those scenes and feeling bored or even all that frustrated just because, you know, she she's just a very compelling actress and I just feel like that storyline still has me invested.
0: I almost think she is kind of like a new generation's like Daniel Radcliffe or Emma Watson, just this this performer who we met her when she was very young and, and was very talented then and just, I don't know, seeing her kind of age before our eyes is almost kind of like one of the best special effects that the show has. Uh, and this is a show with, with, with lots of good effects effects. Who's going to be her Ivan Drago, though? That's kind of my question. Is it the Mountain? Because that is something that that would pay off everything if, if we could see her face off against. Oh my god, Arya Stark
1: versus the Mountain, that would be that would be amazing although it's just I I'm getting you know that old animated short Bambi versus Godzilla in in, in my head just uh, <laughs> just thinking about how that might go
0: I, I don't think she would win on uh, brute strength uh, let me just say that about how that battle would would no, go down I think that's fair
1: in terms of the Aria complaints too you know another thing is you know, she has has been a presence in these three episodes you know it's been interesting this season because I don't think we've ever seen them spend Uh, So much time away from certain characters and laser focus on on others. I mean, you've had I mean, like 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 Littlefinger is completely uh, gone. You you have Sam and Gilly uh, who were out of the first two and then just had one short scene. I find it interesting the way that they're sort of shaking up the format, not just uh, rotating uh, strictly between every single storyline, every single person, you know, they're they're definitely uh, uh, sort of very much picking and choosing who they spend time with and are, aren't, aren't afraid to keep people off screen. I think uh, last week, I, th- I think that was like perhaps maybe one of the first uh, episodes we've ever had Danny completely not in it. And now in this week, you know, she was just in one short scene. So, and, you know, and she's a major character. So it's it's been interesting the way, Uh, they've really invested in some storylines and really pulled back in others, at least for the time being.
0: You mentioned uh, Danny... She's in a not-so-good place. Uh, She's hanging out with uh, all the other kind of uh, former Khaleesi's. It does not seem like, uh, you know, the best retirement community on the face of the planet. Uh, There are not that many amenities there. Um, And I was intrigued to find out, too, that, you know, however bad her situation is, it may soon get even worse because she sort of broke the the Khaleesi code of conduct that, you know, once you're a widow, you have to come to this horrible shadowy room and live out the rest of your days.
1: (laughs) Right. It's like, I can't imagine why she would not want to do that. I mean, why aren't are, aren't they all excited to, to to live in the in in the grass hut of shadows? Uh, apparently Yeah, not. yeah,
0: like 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 bye. Like I'm going to go to the summer Isles. See you guys. Um part of the frustration with Jamie right now is I am just kind of like, "Ugh, like At some point, can't, like, a dragon just come out of the sky and, like, kill all these people? Like, ah, like, (laughs) you know, why, 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 Drogon? Why are you so fickle in your, in all your ways? How are you kind of feeling about her storyline right now, James? That's, that's another one where it feels like we've been in sort of a holding pattern for the first part of this season. I
1: think the one thing I would say about Daenerys' storyline is clearly her experience there is going somewhere, And I think that you're going to see a certain amount of investment in that storyline next week uh, with some new developments that I think will be of interest to viewers. And that's pretty much all I can say.
0: Now it's time to crack open our mailbag. And uh, here's something from a listener from Philadelphia, name of Matt Steinmetz. Hey, guys. Doesn't Tyrion's successful read he lived to tell about it encounter with the dragons in the dungeon last week further the theory I've never heard this before truly that Tyrion is a Targaryen? Hmm. Great question. I'm going to kind of like admit right here that most of my theories about A Song of Ice and Fire have been largely focused on Quentin Martell. So there are some major theories that I've never really been aware of until they've they've come up on the show. This is an interesting one because (laughs) as a lot of people know, there are a lot of theories about another character who may or may not be a Targaryen. So I'm somewhat tickled by the idea maybe everyone's going to be a Targaryen (laughs) in the end. I do wonder if, if that is maybe one secret Targaryen too many. What's your read on on this one, James.
1: I mean, obviously Tywin was convinced uh, Tyrion was his son, so it wouldn't have been on Tywin's end that anything went uh, went awry. I, I guess that would mean their mother, who died giving birth to him, was stepping out with a Targaryen. Is is, is that the sort of theory?
0: There's a lot of this in the books, and honestly, some of it even comes from ancillary literature. Uh, the, the main focal point is that uh, the Mad King' heiress, uh, um, among the many mad things that uh, that he did, apparently took quite a liking to uh, Tyrion's mother. There may or may not have been some kind of horrible, like prima nocta thing, although that would not be the smoking gun for Tyrion because that would have happened many years before he was born. Um, th- this is all kind of leading up to the idea that that. The show will ultimately end with three of our favorite characters riding dragons to defeat the White Walkers, which, you know, is is either maybe where it's all going or maybe that's where we want it to go and there's some horrible twist involved. Right. My, my own sense is, you know, the showrunners seem pretty savvy about, you know, if we're going to do one big reveal, which requires, you know, a, a lot of history and, and a lot of kind of somewhat confusing stuff. We'll maybe just do one where the books may have done many of them. So that's that's kind of my read on it. But you know, who who knows?
1: <laughs> I sort of took Tyrion's interaction with the dragons at face value uh, last week, and, and maybe that, that was that was dumb to do. But but that that he is friends with their mom. He didn't mean them any harm. He's he's read up on the subject. And the dragons were able to recognize that this person was acting in their best interest and therefore didn't harm him. Uh, So I I just sort of read that, you know, exactly as it played. But, uh, you know, you know, I I sure don't know all the different uh, secret parental histories of Westeros and Esso. So so, I mean, you know, could be a maybe. But I, you yeah, know, I would, I would probably put more chips on the other secret Tar- Targaryen over, over Tyrion.
0: We're gonna mark this as a maybe. Uh, another question from the mailbag comes from uh, Scott Southard. Uh, Scott has a kind of long question that I'll try to abbreviate uh, just a little bit. Basically, saying um, I want to know more about the contract Martin signed with HBO. Uh, it seems very unique in the entertainment world, buying the rights to books not yet written. Uh, does Martin have the liberty to, to change the plot in the last two books? When we reach the end, are, are we going to see what Martin is planning? Uh, did he tell the producers what would happen in the end? If Martin makes a major shift after the series films, could Martin be sued for for breach of contract? Lots of questions here. I'm going to guess probably no on the breach of contract thing, although I am by no means a, a lawyer, so he probably shouldn't listen to me on that. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean,
1: ultimately, I have no idea what's what's in Martin's contract. My my sense just from the interviews he's given is that they bought the rights to Song of Ice and Fire including future novels. Um, but that doesn't necessarily include other uh, things like the, uh, like the Duncan egg books that also take place in that same universe. But, you know, I, you know, I could be wrong there. I, that's kind of the feeling and that's always sort of dangerous to go off feelings, but that's the kind of feeling that I have about it in terms of what he can write versus, uh, the show. Um, it seems pretty clear based on interviews that Martin is free. Uh, very much free to uh, tell whatever story he wants to tell in his final two books. He can take whatever direction that that he wants. From their conversations, uh, the, what the showrunners have suggested is that Martin's plan for the last two books was in many ways still – Blurry that he knew some major things, but for the most part, all the connective tissue, all the details, all the way characters got to various uh, points were pretty much up in the air. And so what we're seeing right now in season six is definitely more the showrunners uh take on where the story should should go and what's the most dramatic way and most interesting way and and true to the character way to 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 continue those storylines than anything that's coming up in the books. And both of them, you know, I mean at least the way it's being spun is is that, you know, everyone seems kinda okay with the idea of these two different universes being out there, these two different stories that are not the same. And because that way the show isn't quote unquote spoiling the books uh, so much because when you read the books, you're not going to know if Jon Snow comes back and you're not going to know if he comes back, whether it's Melisandre who brings him back or if there's something involving ghosts or, you know, you're not going to know what's going to happen because it could be the same. It could not be the same
0: that wraps it up for the mailbag feel free to tweet your questions or comments to at james Hippard or at darren frandich or send us both an email at gotpodcast at ew.com we'll try to get to them in our next episode if you like what you've heard please tell your friends about us do not forget to subscribe and leave us a comment in itunes we love reading everything you have to say we look forward to talking more about what's going on in westeros next week